This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Films. Doing Our Work Session 5, Race and Law Enforcement. Lewis Pitts, a Greensboro resident with 43 years of experience as a civil rights lawyer, provides an overview of the role of law enforcement to maintain white supremacy from slavery to the new Jim Crow right up to today's police killings. Using examples from Greensboro, he shows the importance of building resistance through a popular, united front centered on the simple imperative of truth-telling. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to my friend, Lewis Pitts. Uh, until very recently, was a retired uh, civil rights attorney, and now you're a former retired, is that right? Do I have that in the right order? Uh, and longtime community active activist, and just generally a straight-up decent guy. Lewis, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. <clears throat> Let me speak a minute to you so you can get used to the mic and my uh, South Carolina accent. And, you know, how many people have perfect attendance so far at these doing our great? How many people have been at least twice? Great, great. Uh, seasoned crew. I'm not sure if at any other ones we've had a round of applause for Julie and her colleagues here at the church for continuing to host these. So let's take a moment and do that. I am a part of the uh, Community City Working Group, but I need to do a disclaimer. I do not speak for them. They may or may not agree with what I'm going to say tonight, so I just wanted to be fair to that. I'm not a spokesperson for them. I think I'm here to deal with our presenting issue of race and law enforcement because I had over four decades of being a civil rights lawyer and activist and have some pretty strong views from my experience as well as from the books that I've read. So I want to share with those with you. And I agonized within myself about you know, I'm talking to a group of white people, most of them maybe going to be my age, they haven't walked the path I've walked. How much will I offend people by saying what I want to say? But what I decided was not to try to water anything down, because I didn't think that would be anything but insulting to you. So I want to tell you what I really believe sincerely, and I hope you can find something uh, useful in that context of those statements. And I also want to dedicate this next little bit here to all the women who've been in the civil rights movement and are in the civil rights movement. And I'll reference a few of them as soon as I get started, but too often we fail to think about and recognize the women in the, that have been as part of that movement. So our presenting issue is, I guess bluntly put, um, somewhat began to be more known about after Ferguson and it's really police officers killing non-white people. In fact, that's such a prevalent thing that the numbers are from, uh, seem like a news reporting agency, not my numbers, but last year in 2015, little over three people a day of color were killed by police officers in the United States, day in and day out. So in a few more hours, it'll be three more likely to have been 
killed. And what we also need to remember that is that that's one key point, but what comes out when we've looked at those is it's sort of just not that one officer who did a terrible thing, because he's now been caught on video, is too often his colleagues lied to cover up and submitted a false report to conceal that and cover it up. And even if you're looking in Chicago, and we don't all do this because we get mesmerized or numbed about it and have more uplifting things to do, but the district attorneys, the people's prosecuting lawyers, tend to get dirtied up by hiding and concealing these things. There's even a sort of psychiatrist or psychological term, it's called the code of silence. That the police officers know they need to cover for their buddy because when they're out in the street and need to be their back covered because they're in really danger, the fear is that their buddies, if they've been a whistleblower, won't show up to protect them. It's, it's extremely serious. We luckily don't have a shooting death in Greensboro, but literally four or five days before Ferguson happened in 2014, in August, we had a case that's become fairly widely known about the Scales Brothers case. If you read the October last year, 2015, New York Times linked the article. It's about Greensboro. That's the picture. I'll come back to that case. I don't want to talk about it right now. But we have our own issues as they relate to violence from law enforcement of a racial nature. Now, those of us who've been here or you've read about, we started out this series of doing our work with Bay Love talking to us about 1600 and the beginning of a social construct of race, that it's not a biological thing. And he, I think he titles his presentation, The Groundwater, because he's gone through and then we followed up with Claire Morris who talked about implicit bias. That we don't even know we've got a bias and we do just about all of us, because we're so steeped in this process that started three or 400 years ago. And then we heard from Larry Morris and Bob about the economics. And then we heard last time about how it's manifest in our education system, the achievement gap. It's just awful what's happening to people. So one of the first women at our site is Ann Braden. If you don't know about Ann Braden, a white woman who grew up, born in Alabama, grew up in, in uh, Louisville, and was just really active with her husband, Carl, and his, uh, her biography's been, been written about her, and there's a documentary, I think it's called A Southern Patriot, and I'll come back to that. But I had the pleasure of working with her for about a decade in the 1980s, and she used to say that whatever there is good in society, black people got about half of it. Now that was a rough number, but if you look at the actual numbers, they aren't that far off. And whatever is bad in society, black people have about twice that. So you, you keep that in mind. One, it's a simple way to keep some data in mind. The good stuff, they get half. The bad stuff, that twice falls upon them. It checks out. I want to come back to that issue of her being a patron, because I think it's important when we start here, we have to have something to stand on. What are our principles? What are our values that make us, require us to have some judgments about three black people being killed today or any other things that we want to call it injustice? 
And I do believe that we are the patriots here. If you go to the values that are embedded in our founding documents, and I'm gonna cover the problems with the founding documents. I haven't forgotten to remember that part. But, you know, all people are, says men are created equal. We say that. Think about these as values that are noble goals, not realities yet. We established our nation to establish justice, to ensure domestic tranquility. We've got a cornerstone that the Supreme Court justices, the good ones, would call it the equality principle, a cornerstone of American law and justice. We've got terms like due process. So those similar values have spiritual or religious versions. You could say the golden rule. Uh, I don't mean the Goldman Sachs golden rule, those who have the gold rule, but the idea that we treat people fairly and justly. So I think it's important for us to realize and not feel that by being here or being concerned that somehow we're part of a fringe. These values are at the very core of what we are supposed to celebrate on 4th of July when we stand and do whatever we're willing to do to our flag. And now, let's don't let our views, the real ones, be shoved out. Why is it sort of civil rights lawyer or uh, somebody that, that fights for employ against employment discrimination, why is that called left? Because you know, Cold War left meant, you know what Cold War meant, somehow communism, totalitarianism. We're the core, we're at the center. So with a little bit more on that point, in our state constitution, there's a section that says, a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles is absolutely essential for the preservation of liberty. So we should keep that in mind and harp back to that. And then there's another one that's in there that I think I would want to say is the most critical. And often I do this, set it up kind of like a little joke and say, here's something from the Black Panther parties out of the 1960s. What I'm reading to you is out of our North Carolina state constitution. In most states, original states, have this. Check this out. All political power is vested in and derived from the people. All government of right originates from the people, is founded upon their will only, and is instituted solely for the good of the whole. That means these things, frankly, are your responsibility, your resp our responsibility to deal with them. So. One more thing I wanted to point out is another woman, Fannie Lou Hamer. I didn't get to know Fannie Lou Hamer from the 1960s, Mississippi. She's probably widely known for, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. But she also pointed out that I had on a poster in my office for 20 or more years, what's hurting black folks is hurting white folks. And we've got to work together. So that's a way that I want to begin to have uh, a discussion that there's no doubt that disproportionately the bad stuff is hitting on African Americans. There's some version of white privilege because the, a privilege, we just think the norm is us. But it's really a mistake to think and act as if there aren't economic harms and other harms that are happening to white people. It's just not an organizing principle to not include that. The black folks never 
argued that, and I'll come to that a little bit later. They recognized that what's hurting black folks is hurting white folks, and we need to come together to deal with this. That's so important because your interest is in stopping police officers and law enforcement from mistreating and killing black people. But think about the somber times that we're in right now. Think about the debates in the Republican Party. Think about that we have a United States president who makes a decision about drone assassinations that they have admitted, this is not my speculation, you can find the documents, that could include US citizens without any accountability to any court of law or any of you as the sovereign power. Or think about the grinding poverty and the increase in the gap between wealth. Think about the 1%, that term, that, that's been so clear. You know, our entire body politic is sick. And it's so important that we get a handle on this. So let me shift a little bit with that as sort of a, a backdrop or a context. If you haven't read Michelle Alexander's book, I just can't recommend it enough. And if you read it, you'd probably enjoy reading it again. I know I did, and I thought I'd tried to study and know a lot of this. She said the things about the criminal justice system that I'd experienced, but hadn't been able to write down so well. But she says early on in her book, literally in the first chapter, that to understand the continuation of racial caste systems, plural, it's important to study some of the history and of the politics and economics of the founding of the nation. So I want to do that right quick. I want to take a look at what is this thing that's hurting us all, as Fannie Lou said. Well, this is a part that maybe you heard in history class. I didn't until much later. But listen to this. Madison and those people, not only did they own slaves, and they probably all had a 1,000 acres of land and so forth, they were terrified of real democracy. They'd come from king monarchy and come over here, wanted to shed that. Good, that's a great start. But Madison, he felt that democracy posed a serious threat because of the likelihood in, quote, the proportion of those who will labor under all the hardships of life and secretly sigh for a more equal distribution of its blessings. They were fearful of agrarian reform. Well, I thought agrarian reform, that's like agriculture, right? They did it. So I go to a big, we got a big old Oxford dictionary, that old, I do it online, I flipped out pages, it felt great to hold the book. There's a ver agrarian reform meant an equal redistribution of land. That was scary. Our government, in order to protect the current property owners, quote, our government ought to secure the permanent interest, Washington, the founders, of the country against innovation. Let me say that's a vague term, innovation. What is he really saying? Makes it pretty clear. They were scared of Madison's term, the leveling spirit. You get what that is, obviously. Human beings have an aspiration to get, have enough and have even maybe more for their children. So they rigged the system from day one. 
Now, they rigged it more so against African-Americans, and I'm getting to the law enforcement because who enforces the rigging but law enforcement? The system was to be rigged according to Alexander Hamilton, our first banker, the rich and the well-born should rule. Now, Madison said this one. The country ought to be constituted or set up, listen, to, quote, to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority. So I thought, well, maybe I don't quite understand opulent. Yep, I looked that up. Ostentatious wealth. Do you see a theme running through here that's still... Madison wanted, was concerned about framing a system which we wish to last for all the ages. So it was against fair voting. It wasn't much question about fair voting back then, unless you were a white property-owning male, you didn't have any chance. But down to today, they wanted to secure the rights of property against danger from an equality of universality of suffrage, vesting complete power over property in the hands without a share of it. Well, to make it a little more clear, the first Chief Justice of our U U.S. Supreme Court, uh, John Jay, quote, those who own the country should run the country. He just told it right out. So think about it. When we hear about and you read about lawsuits that are going on now with African-American, the NAACP is a plaintiff, and you got the civil rights lawyers that are representing, don't think you don't have a vested interest in fighting against voter ID cards and all these barriers that are being put up because the barriers that they want are to be against you as well as them. It's some version that we should see what's happening to African-American people as the old canary in the mine shaft. You know, that really happened. You burned a canary in a cage in the mine shaft and when the poisonous gases got so strong that the canary keeled over, the folks would pull out. Our canary, African-American canaries, are not keeling over. They could from environmental destruction. They're being murdered on the streets. And it's been going on. It's only now more prevalently understood because of video cameras. Other people down the ages, and I'm moving from the, from the, uh, the founders on forward, they were scared of democratic dogmatism. The idea of one person, one vote was democratic dogmatism. They were frightened of, quote, the trampling and the roar of the bewildered herd. That's the people that we like to hold up that have all the power and only grant it to the government if it's done for the interest of the whole. So they wanted an elite guardianship to control. It was the best they could come up with of what they've got. But luckily, the people have fought and pursued this further. But meanwhile, what is so brilliant about uh, Michelle Alexander is she will take you through this journey of the continuing, what one of the women that she quotes, uh, Reva Siegel, talks about preserver, preserving that, that status quo, a rule by the rich, preservation through transformation. So we have a civil war. We pass the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. You know, abolish slavery, equal protection for everybody, and voting rights for everybody. They're buried. The legal historians talk about those amendments are buried for 100 years. The point I'm making there to underscore is we can have the good laws passed. They're meaningless unless we have a involved and engaged citizenry that will fight for it and demand it. It's the point that democracy is not a spectator sport. So let me move to a little directly, more directly about law enforcement. Let's move to 
the 1830s and 40s and the slave patrols are in what was one of the sharpest men you'd ever hear about, John Hope Franklin. This is a book of essays called Race and History. He wrote the famous uh, treatise called From Slavery to Freedom, from Durham, was at Duke for a long time. But he wrote a chapter, an essay in here, and it's called The Marshall South. And you think about in the 1830s, the South, the way it's on the frontier, uh, they have real or perceived dangers from the Native American population, the savages is what we call it in the uh, Declaration of Independence. And they were kind of into duels. <laughs> so I think John Hope uses the term uh, uh, a spirit of belligerency already existing in the South. But he says the most prominent impactive force on this belligerency was slavery. And he goes into even the white children learn at an early age to boss around the slave. And he, he talks about how it impacts everybody, white children, older people, that it was just awful. I didn't realize it, but remember um, Alexis de Tocqueville who wrote Democracy in America, the famous book? Here's just a few lines from that. This is from him, quote, the citizen of the southern states become a sort of domestic dictator from infancy. The first notion he acquires in life is that he was born to command, and the first habit he contracts is that of ruling without resistance. Now think about this mindset being transferred as we begin to talk about slave patrols in the militia and police departments. His education tends then to give him the character of a haughty and hasty man, irascible, violent, ardent in his desires, impatient of obstacles, but easily discouraged if he did not succeed in his first attempt. So now another thing that Michelle Alexander has talked about, you probably heard about, the war on poverty. I was surprised to read this term war showing up. Here's John Hope Franklin's. If the relationship between master and slave was that of a superior and a subordinate, a despot or a tyrant, and a powerless subject or an armed victor and a vanished foe, it can almost be described as a state of war. At least it is possible to recognize the martial spirit that pervaded the entire plantation atmosphere. Now, law enforcement is subject to the control, theoretically, of a judiciary. Here's what a North Carolina Supreme Court justice said during the Judge Thomas Ruffin Maybe some of you are akin to Justice Ruffin. He said this, quote, the power of the master must be absolute to render the submission of the slave perfect. So is there really any wonder that when a police officer today coming out of these, this culture confronts, and they usually go to an African-American person, and as I'll, if I have time, I'll give you an example of a case confronting an African man and said, I think you're dealing drugs. And the guy said, why do you stereotype me? That's about all it took. He's thrown on the ground and arrested and charged with assault on the police officer, which didn't, didn't occur, did not occur. So John Hope also uses the term here, and we get at this notion of the racial bribe. He calls it the pseudo-nobility of race. You can be the poorest white man, and you got something higher and better than them. So they had slave patrols. It was like conscription. Anybody over 18, unless you had some e exemption, 
was required to be part of the patrol, to go out and make sure slaves were not in an improper place at night. They would follow them around. And it was the beginning, the precursor of stop and frisk. If, you were, if they were not on the plantation they were supposed to be, they had absolute power and authority over them. It was no, no rules. It was subject to the interpretation of the planner. So once again, emphasizing a white privilege, but it's somewhat illusory because there were plenty of poor, poor folks there. So I've mentioned the burial of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments. Uh, there was a Redeemer movement. So after the Civil War, we've got to deal with a new social caste race system. The one that happens is Jim Crow. You just, at best, 1898, I think it is, have the Supreme Court say, separate but equal. So you have a caste system, you arguably, you always put the nice words, go back to the Constitution. You probably know that when we passed our first Constitution in 1789, the word black or slave or Negro is not in there. But that Constitution embraces slavery, at least two different ways. Anybody want to yell it out so you're not? Well, such other persons as may exist after they've identified are counted as three-fifths. So the South could have some voting power. You get three-fifths of a person for those objects. Uh, speaking of that as their property, the slave patrols were protecting property. So think about that today in the role of law enforcement. Or as we moved into unions and, and workers wanting to struggle together, who is it that shows up to, from law enforcement that protects the factory and the factory owners, it's law enforcement. The other one is they protected the slave trade till 1808. 1808. It's embraced in there. You could transport and buy and sell persons. But we, we aren't up front about those things. So there's, I obviously don't have time and you don't want to hear me try to describe all that, that full century. But we move up to uh, the prison population. There's been this going on. Well, I'm going to come back to the 60s. Let me, let me, but let me talk about the prison population because that's one of the horrible things that we have when we have mass incarceration. I'm sure you know that we have the largest incarceration rate in the world. So I like this date. So the early 70s, I graduated from law school in 1973, so it's a good base for me. The prison population in this nation at that point was about... 350,000. And her book gives the quotes from sort of the prison, you know, the professors in institutional and the prison reform people, and even some law enforcement. They were aghast at how high that was. There's even a quote I could pull out that says, we should totally stop building any kind of prisons for juveniles anymore and release them. That's just absurd to lock up the young people. And we should cut back and do away with this ridiculous... We got 2.1 or 2 or 3 million in prison now. And in North Carolina, the only state when a child in school or anywhere is 16 and they steal a pencil or push somebody down, their case goes to adult criminal court. Adult criminal court. And we've criminalized the school environment. So just think how much our thinking has been colonized, or I don't know, is brainwashed a better word? Colonized thinking to go from me right out of law school being outraged at the prison population 
And now I'm walking around today with it's gone up from 350,000 to 2.2 million. If you had to, people on parole, and, and it goes to seem like 7 million. And think disproportionately how many more of those are African American or people of color. Then you have a criminal justice system that when you get caught, you get a trial, right? Well, if you got money, you can hire a great lawyer. If you don't have any money, you get an appointed lawyer. I was one of those appointed lawyers my first three years out, and I fought hard and tried hard. But it's a different world, I think, now. They have caseloads of, maybe they have a 1,000 on a caseload. And the pressure to force a plea, to plead guilty, to apologize, or with a big hammer, oh, you're not going to take the plea? And you can go over here in front of that judge and have a trial, and you'll probably get 18 years. I can get you probation over here. And it's just an assembly line. It's awful. And in terms of reform with regard to lawyers filing motions to say, but this is, race, this is racism in the way the jury selected. I'm not getting a jury of peers. How that massaged is you have to prove intent. You have to prove that that cop or that juror or that judge expressly has a deliberate, mean intent to be a racist, which Claire Mars talked to us about implicit bias, isn't, isn't the way it works. So think about this democracy movement now. I'm shifting larger to everybody. In the 1960s, you've got, an anti, you've got a civil rights movement that's happening. You've got an anti-Vietnam War movement. You've got women talking and doing things they ought to be doing to fight for justice and equality. You've got college students who want to have control over a curriculum and be taught a history that's more like I was trying to talk about Madison rather than what we're taught, that everything was great. In fact, they've got a term for it. What do they call it? Um, what's the term about America being perfect? Yes, U.S. exceptionalism. We're the, the city, shining city on the hill. Whatever we did, we had to do it because they were uh, the, the tr trampling wild herd. So when you put all of this resistance coming up, you get more opposition. So now I want to shift and talk a little bit about police and law enforcement as an overt mechanism to fight the leveling spirit from all of us. And what I want to do is go to, this is the final report that comes from a, a volume, like I grew up with World Book, World Book Encyclopedia. This is the final one, and it's the U.S. Senate, and it's called Intelligence Activities and the Rights of Americans. It's 1976, so, you know, Watergate, do your own thinking. Where were you in 1972, 3, 4, 5? So just a little bit from this. Here's what our senators were saying. Quote, our investigation has confirmed that warning about intelligence gathering shifting to be more about political policing. We have seen segments of our government in their attitudes and action adopt tactics unworthy of a democracy and occasionally reminiscent of tactics of totalitarian regimes. We've seen a consistent pattern in which programs initiated with limited goals, such as preventing criminal violence or identifying foreign spies, was expanded to what witnesses characterized as vacuum cleaners, sweeping in information about lawful activities of American citizens. 
Now, call, pause a minute and think about what we've learned in the last year or two about the National Security Agency. And every one of your electronic devices is being monitored. Every one of them. That's like from slides from the NSA. But this is a little more explicit. This is from then attorney, well, I'm sorry, in the 1940, this is a quote from the U.S. Attorney General Robert Jackson, who gets at this issue of the leveling spirit. Here's how he phrased it, quote, activities which seem benevolent or helpful to wage earners, persons on relief, or those who are disadvantaged in the struggle for existence, may be regarded as subversive by those whose property interests might be burdened thereby. Those who are in office are apt to regard subversive, subversive the activities of any of those who would bring about a change of administration. Some of our soundest constitutional doctrines were once punished as subversive. We must not forget that it was not so long ago that both the term, quote, Republican, end quote, and the term Democrat were epithets with sinister meaning to denote persons of radical tendencies that were subversive of the order of things then dominant. And it goes on to talk about COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program, which goal was not to find people engaged in criminal conduct, but to disrupt, discredit, and neutralize movements for justice. For example, the very dangerous WLM, the Women's Liberation Movement. There's documentation here where they would send agents to women's groups, probably a woman, I guess. She'd come back and say, well, they were there, and they were talking about sort of sexual oppression or the, role, the boring role of being just a wife and a mother. Would kind of, and then they kind of, I think she thought, so we can close this program, they kept sending them back. But particularly, that program is so notorious for what it did to the Black Panther Party. And they, in fact, did break-ins, they spied on people, they convinced you that the Black Panthers were violent, and so forth. Here's an actual document that's signed and initial by J. Edgar Hoover from 1970. These are the kinds of things that they pulled out for this. Just to show you, there's a, there's a proposal in here. These COINTELPRO activities to disrupt, discredit, and neutralize, one of them was, let's convey to capitalize on Huey Newton's favorable stance towards homosexuals that's already been authorized. They said, that's a great idea. Split up that movement by saying the Huey Newton is okay with homosexuals. They knew that might start a fight or a split. But they talked about a second program where they were going to suggest that David Hilliard, a Black Panther Party member, was stealing Black Panther funds, stealing money, and depositing it in a foreign bank account. And somebody wrote back and said, well, an FBI agent, department in San Francisco. Well, we can't do that because we don't have any proof he did it. Here's what J. Edgar Hoover wrote. Uh, There's no record that, that Hilliard is skimming large amounts of money. Hoover says, purpose of counterintelligence action is to disrupt the Black Panther Party. And it's immaterial where the facts exist to substantiate the charge. If facts are present, it aids in the success of the proposal, but the Bureau feels that the skimming of money is such a sensitive issue that disruption can be accomplished without facts to back it up. So I'm getting at that bold word, lying. This is our government lying. And then it goes, I won't take the time, they're going to send out a communication to indicate somebody's about to get assassinated, and there are many people that believe that it was government 
that played a role in getting Black Panther Party's members assassinated. Uh, there's a documentary about the Black Panther Party out, I think, uh, right now. So who are the subversives? <laughs> who are the, it ain't us, right? It's not the people leveling. It's not the black community that's trying to demand that black lives matter. It seems to be this ruling elite. It's, it's gotten so bad now that even former President Jimmy Carter said within three weeks that our electoral system with all that big private money and the absurd notion that spending a lot of money is free speech, Jimmy Carter says it's legalized bribery. You think he was a radical like me up here talking. And I hope he is. I hope we're all patriots. Uh, so, in fact, in, 19, in 2013, Michelle Alexander had an op-ed in the New York Times. It's called, Why Police Lie Under Oath. And essentially, she says, there are three, roughly three reasons. They know they can get away with it. The code of silence, nobody's going to bust them. No challenge from the district attorneys or the judges, because they just kind of, well, you know, officer, you don't want to be unpatriotic, you know, you don't want to. Two, the defendants, African-American, usually tend to come from being poor and black, and no one cares. Racial indifference, I think, is the term that Michelle uses, that we've racially indifferent. And the third one is this incentive, and she does such, to lie to obtain arrest, the more arrests you've got, the more grant money you can get, the more you can be part of the war on drugs, and that whole phenomenon that she lays out. When you don't want to use the actual N-word and be racist because it's not cool anymore, under Nixon and so forth, how that was shifted to be law and order. So you equate African-American with, with being criminal. So if you're okay, let me move on to the really uncomfortable part. <laughs> which is some examples from Greensboro that are maybe even more current. What I found is easier to talk to people about genocide against Native Americans because that was way back there. Uh, we're going to get up pretty close, roughly 2013. Well, let me pull something from Yes Weekly. Remember back when Jordan Green and Eric Ginsburg, who now in City Beat, wrote for this one? Here's a quote from Jordan from 2006. Quote, I'm do, right now I'm on the intelligence gathering. This idea that law enforcement is playing an active role in chilling, deterring, prosecuting the legitimate exercise of First Amendment rights. I don't think anything that could be more subversive than to have your paid law enforcement with guns and access and such unearned credibility in a system that allows people to be put in jail than to have them monkeying with the process of free speech and marches and protests. But here, quote, a frank acknowledgement by the Greensboro Police Department that one of its non-sworn employees attended and recorded community meetings and recorded private conversations with prominent African-American pastors and businessmen, along with leaders in the truth and reconciliation process, stunned many of those who'd been under surveillance. So that was out there in public. Now, I don't think our local newspaper ran a word on that. I'm pretty sure our nightly news didn't run a word on that. If you read that, like I did, 
I don't think I did anything about it. <laughs> At some point, we have to do something. Now, let's move to 2013, and I can only do this briefly. This is Eric Ginsburg. It's the cover. Are You Being Watched? And I think the actual article is called Under Surveillance. Well, to try to summarize that one, Eric did a, a records request. He asked the city to give me some records that have, and he put the words in, anarchist, uh, truth and reconciliation, and all these were communist or socialist and, and change. And they made a mistake, and they sent him a bunch of emails. And what did we find out? They were spying on the green bean, you know, the coffee shop. Liz Seymour, who was running the IRC at the time, was named as a target and a subject of this. What was really frightening was that there's an email from an officer, from a sergeant at the time, that says that one of our current city council members was acting as a confidential informant. And there was all kind of stuff on Occupy, all, Occupy Wall Street. There was not a word in any of those emails indicated any of that conduct was criminal in nature or was about to be. It was about dissent and ideas of thinking. Now, here's what's really, there's more that I could go on about. Here's what's really, you can go online and look that up and yes, in their, there's their uh, doc in there, whatever they call it, their library. But what's very interesting is, our police chief and department found out about the night before it was to go to press. They grabbed the city police attorney, jumped in the car, Chief Ken Miller, drove over to Winston-Salem, found a superior court judge, and said, Judge, we want to get a restraining order from you. One of the most drastic things in the book, a prior restraint of freedom of the press, because those minions over there in the, in the city released these records wrongly. These records are criminal intelligence investigative files, and they cannot be released. So, and they, I, I don't have it to wave, but the chief of police signed an affidavit that these documents were criminal files involving criminal intelligence. Luckily, which is a shock to me, the judge said, I ain't touching that one with a 10-foot pole, and didn't sign it, and it got released. But to think that the green bean and the IRC is being labeled as criminal activities and subject to criminal investigation. I appeared before the city council, gave one of those three-minute things, brought this up, said we got to figure out we need a criteria by which the police are allowed to investigate what otherwise seems to be uh, protected First Amendment activities, nothing happened. Um, so all this came out about uh, adopting totalitarian practices in 1976, 1979 in Greensboro, we had the November 3rd massacre where, where ATF, alcohol tobacco informants went inside the Nazis, a Greensboro police informant went inside the Klan, they formed the United Races Front. They drive into Greensboro and they shoot and murder five Union activists, some of whom were communists, and injured 13 others. And there's a massive cover-up that goes on for years. They're acquitted. And if you wanted to check that one out, our city produced, because of the power of the people who recognized the sovereign power and their civic obligations, created a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. First one in the world, not ever, but 
done over and against the wishes of the power structure. See, when Mandela took over in South Africa, it was under his rule that they did one. Well, Bishop Tutu came here and blessed that process. Professor UNCG Spoma Ivanovich, who happens to be my wife, wrote a book about that. <laughs> Democracy, Dialogue, and Community Action. If you haven't read it, I think you'd be surprised at what you can figure out about that process. Let's move up to roughly 2013. Bennett College, you know, all women Methodist schools, graduation, they're having a party. The police, police show up in there and say something. Next thing you know, there's a fight, and the police charge several of these young women who are, just, who are graduating that they slapped a police officer. Two police officers testified in court, made it up. Five of the young women came in, and only because they had the president of the college in the, in the audience and a bunch of popular people support did they not get, well, actually, several of the women said, I can't stay around. I've graduated. i got to go get a job. I'll cop that plea to that little bitty thing they offer me. If you've seen Spotlight, you will see that same concept used to hide the uh, abuse by the, by the police. But one woman said, I'm not going to start my career lying on myself and accepting a plea when I did nothing wrong. And luckily, the judge in two minutes found her not guilty. There's the case of uh, Marie and James, and I have to apologize, I don't remember their last, in their late 50s, African-American couple sitting in car in front of James's house, their boyfriend, girlfriend. He's gone in to bring her juice. She's a diabetic, got really low blood sugar, confused. Officer drives up, shines a light and says, what are y'all doing here? And they explain it, and the cop says, I think to him, you're a drug dealer, and I think you're a prostitute. Get out of the car. And she wobbles and wiggles and gets out, and he's the one that says, why are you racial profiling me, accusing me of being a drug dealer? He's a supervisor at Walmart, or was. Next thing you know, he's thrown to the ground, and they, they are charged with assaulting the police officers. And they, got, they, couldn't, they couldn't overcome it. I, I wasn't involved, but I've heard people talk about that man who'd been in, seemed like, special forces, crying. Because they, they were just ready to take him to court. And bring in his military records, say he got shot in the head and he was crazy, and his lawyer said, you better take, and they had, they had to apologize. There are other examples. But, oh my, uh, thank you for listening patiently to, to this. This issue of propaganda and how much we're able to understand, let me go to the Scales case right quick and try to gallop through that. So days before Ferguson happens, Two African-American brothers, I think 31 or two and 26, so young, younger men, are walking down the street near where they live with their grandmother. They've put her to, to bed. She's an invalid. It's 5.30 or 6. There, there's no sidewalk. They're walking down the street, literally. A police cruiser goes by. They say to their lawyer, he saw him in the rearview mirror, and they smirked at him. He backs up. Apparently, he yells something out to him, get out of the way, you morons, and he gets them out of the car. And is, they don't resist, but they are then charged with interfering with the flow of traffic or blocking the flow of traffic. There was not a car in sight, but the officers. Being intoxicated, not true, and one of them resisting arrest, wasn't true. So a complaint is filed by some of the community members to the internal process. Now, this is the internal review process that is not an independent citizen's review. It's the fox guarding the hen house, is certainly is my view. 
and it lays it out in full detail about all that, that problem. And coming back from the city is a very shocking letter. It's coming back from a Captain Cranford. It says, after carefully reviewing the investigation, there was evidence to substantiate your complaint against the officer for officer on his actions on August the 4th. We want to assure you that this matter has been addressed appropriately within the organization, and we'll strive to ensure similar issues not occur again. It's our goal to provide the best possible police service within our community. But not a word in there about the charges. So we write back, oh, good, what did you substantiate? What did the officer do, and what are you going to do? We don't deal with that. That's the district attorney. So that was a ruse. Had these young men not had can't remember if I was a practicing lawyer at that time or not, but a handful of people who are familiar with this to keep pushing this issue, they would have probably thought it's over because that's what it says, but it wasn't. So there's community support. We then take it to the next chain, which is a citizen review panel within the process. We don't get to know what they did because it's not public. But apparently they thought that we were kind of right and that this was wrong. So it then kicks up to the chief of police Chief of Police rubber stamps this one. It's then pending and goes up to the next step, which is the city manager. And must I say, all those seem to be like foxes checking on the hen house in my mind. Now, I don't know what would have happened at the city manager's office had there not been this fairly pushy and grumpy community meeting that occurred at uh, Bennett College where there was a lot of people upset. The new ch police chief had just been put in place. The community was really upset at the selection of that chief, but the city manager writes a letter and says, we apologize, we're dropping the charges, and we hope it'll never happen again. Not bad. Except, we say, what did the officer do and what's been done? And we can't get an answer on that. Because we know what has happened. It goes back to this issue of lying and perjury. And the standard day-to-day -day thing is that is rounding up and giving us a prison population like this is that an officer has an engagement with somebody just like with the Bennett's do. They make something up. They go before a magistrate and swear and sign a piece of paper that there was blocking. Well, this is blocking the flow of traffic. Later, it was so embarrassing. The city said, well, there was no traffic. The traffic was the police officer's car, and actually the charge should have been interfering with an emergency vehicle. So you just won't believe how transparent, almost funny, but for these men, their lives, their jobs, they lose them. So we're really furious about this and have a, a, a real face-to-face -face with the city manager. Tell us what Officer Cole did wrong. And they say, well, he could have handled it better. Literally, I was there. What do you mean? Didn't he commit a perjury? We don't know. Then he ultimately says, I'm convinced, and I, have to, I told you I'd be candid. He made up a lie to us and said, our process doesn't have jurisdiction to determine what happened out there and determine if there was probable cause for the arrest. Well, it's transparently wrong because every time they take one of these complaints and unsubstantiate it, they're concluding that the officer is telling the truth and the complainant is not telling the truth. That's where that one is now. Now, so we know that the heart and soul of the day in, day out, falsely saying and making up charges against black people is afoot and loose. But what would you know? 
What would you get to see? Well, on the news and record, um, about April 30th, 2015, video leads to apology. This is a big, big story. City manager apologized to Scale Brother and DAs dropped all the charges. If you read it, it makes, you, makes it seem like they looked at a video and determined, because you know that's the way, and determined there was no video. The officer didn't have his camera on because he'd lent it out to somebody else. So it's just a complete fabrication on that. But, of course, since now there's no, the DA, remember how rudely I've talked about DAs already, says, quote, it was clear there was probable cause to charge. How could he say that he wasn't there? Unless he's believing the officer. It was clear there was probable cause to charge, but the nature of the interaction was bothersome. The officers could have handled it differently. So, but you read this at home over breakfast and you ain't got time to fool with this and you go, all oh, this is pretty good. And then the next day, we get a lead editorial just in case somebody's maybe starting to believe Reverend Nelson Johnson or somebody who's complaining about police problems. This one says, this is accountability and pats the police department in the city on the back for doing such a great job and says, in an extraordinary gesture, City Manager Jim Westmoreland sent them a personal letter <laughs> and apologized. Now, I hope you feel offended by, by that, how you were taken, by, or could have been taken by that. We can't have self-government if we can't have a way to hold them more accountable. So, rushing to a conclusion here. Uh, we need to come up with some very specific requests, or if you will, demands that black, brown, white people, well-off people, or not well-off people can agree to. Because we've come at this in different ways. The they that I've been talking about, you know, what's driving this? I think it's some version of still social control, guarding against a leveling spirit. You know, some people may want to call it, I don't know, capitalism in the bourgeoisie. Some may want to call it the ruling elite. I don't care what we call it, but don't we agree that this kind of stuff is wrong by our values that we all agree to in those founding, in those, the, the proper ones in the founding documents? So, seems like we could call for a fair and equitable monetary settlement for the Scales Brothers case immediately without the usual mode. If we want to be a transformative city, and there's potential for us to be that through this city, community city working group, and your help. We can't do the old way, which is drop it off to lawyers, they litigate it, you pay in tax monies for the city's extra private lawyers, a million dollars. I didn't mention that there were 40 non-white police officers who filed a lawsuit against the police department starting in roughly 2009. Most of them, some of it was you discriminated me in promotion a lot of it was, I got fired because I blew the whistle. I tried to report to my supervisor this crap that's going on, and they dumped me. And you paid over a million dollars for private lawyers. And the city then settled for half a million dollars to 40 of them, so they each got, I don't know, $30,000. Some little nothing to kind of make it go away and put the discovery material in the seal so nobody can ever bring it out and talk about it. Another thing that we need to have is an independent, a real independent citizens review panel or board. Like we just need to have that. That's a vision that we want. 
We should hold officers accountable for perjury. We should release police videotapes to the public with reasonable precautions and limits taken to protect legitimate privacy interest. Nobody wants to see the man or the woman in their underwear at bed at night. That's not what it's about. But if there's a confrontation like the Vu case, where the, the, the mentally ill Vietnamese, no, not Vietnamese, uh, Vietnamese woman with a knife is shot by a police officer, and people are wondering, well, did she really have to be shot? Wasn't there another way to do this? You can't see the tape because it's a personnel record of the police officer. We sure don't want to do anything that would harm the police officer's privacy rights. Think about giving that weight to that person who decided to take a public employee job as a police officer, putting it on the scales and saying his interest to privacy outweighs the accountability of the public in a self-governing democracy where all power resides in the people and you need to hold accountable the city council the manager and the chief of police, that's for the status now. We gotta stop that, that's nuts. End the war on drugs, deprioritize, throw in your net over in the black side of town. The thing the New York Times article told us so clearly is, in Greensboro, with their state's own data, it's like Ann Braden, you're two or four times more likely to be stopped if you're black driving and searched, even though the research shows that white people have more drugs in their car. You double the times you're being arrested for resist or, or, or disorderly if you're black. That's all documented. These are, these are the, the facts. So, concluding. <laughs> That's a hell of a one to have to conclude. This notion of people power and all sovereign power resides with the people, that's not just sort of a slogan. That is the most fundamental thing if we're going to survive living together in this city, town, and planet. And the paradox in that is history has shown that it's that people power that's made changes in the labor movement, the women's movement, the civil rights movement is people power. But the minute you doubt or stop believing that you've got it, it like vanishes. Because you won't pick up the phone, call your neighbor, and go to that meeting. Or you will say, you know, you can't fight City Hall. Uh, you know, Dr. King said, pessimism is a chronic disease. It destroys the red corpuscles of hope and destroys the powerful heartbeat of positive action. And the most challenging issue I think that we face, these are pretty challenging, is, and again I quote an African-American, keeping hope alive, Jesse Jackson. And I'm not sure how we do that, but you sing, you pray, you dance, you collect together, you do dialogue with one another, and you reaffirm and believe that you are at the core of being a patriot, not at a fringe where you kind of have to like, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be at the fringe, I want to be there. And you study and you make some sacrifices. And you, if you pull out the Declaration of Independence, where they say that thing about all men, men, sorry, created equal, think about this. At the end, what would we say about people now? At the end of that document, all those founders that have their own problem, but they at least broke away from monarchy and let a genie out of the bag of people power. They said, we pledge our names, our fortunes, and our lives to this. Check it out. It may be hard to believe. That document also says two different places 
we say and we declare as a declaration that the people have the right and the duty to revolt and overthrow. I'm not advocating a violent revolt, don't get me wrong. I'm talking about nonviolent action, doing something. We have that right and duty. That's our civic responsibility. And we can do it and we can make a difference. And we've got a structure, we've got a historic moment, and you've got information and you've got friends. And let's, let's make these changes and make a few sacrifices at a level that you're able to make right now in your life and make a difference. I really appreciate you listening. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And we have time for questions. Um, we would ask, there are a lot of folks here, and there may be a lot of questions, so we would ask you to keep the, the, the speeches brief. But please come forward. If you come and use this mic, if you have a, a question. And could I just, let's modify it. Question implies I got the answers. Comments are welcome, too, because this is a collective deal. I have my view, and you've had to sit through that for an hour. I thought you had the answers to everything. <laughs> no, no. Well, there is no silver bullet in conversation and doing something, I think, is the closest thing to an answer. Thanks, Louis. Let's, let's hear your thoughts. Okay. Pro, con, suggestions, whatever. Not, not a comment, but a question. Um, I wanted to expand a little bit on the uh, independent review board, police review boards, and, and any successes or failures, problems that other communities might have in, in implementing them and keeping them going. How do you reelect new right. members? and? And that kind of thing. Did it really stay partisan, nonpartisan at the end? I think it's a very good question. It's a, it's a, you, you wouldn't think, it's a frontier area because we've gotten so colonized in our thinking that we hand off the power and don't particularly retake it enough. So there are places that have, have in name and may but probably don't have an independent citizens review body that has subpoena power. So we already have, and I didn't go into it, it's been in place for two years, unaffiliated with the city, an African-American man lawyer, an African-American woman lawyer, both professors, the woman was a New York City police officer for like 15 years, running one in Greensboro. They don't have any official power. They have the power that we would give them. And so what we will be told, and it's true, is even our city council doesn't have the authority to create an ordinance that gives subpoena power to a citizen's group. That, that would have to go and be passed from Raleigh. And there was a bill proposed to do that, but you can, a year ago, you can imagine how far that went in Raleigh. But then I would just say largely because we aren't clamoring and demanding it. <laughs> If we start to clamor and demand that, we might be able to get that. But I think what I want to, I'll say about ours, and I didn't say is the Scales case where I tracked out the letter said, we substantiate your complaint, sorry, we won't ever do it again, we want to give you the best work. Then it's covered up more, and then they won't tell us what went wrong and all that. Right before that, Ken Miller is quoted in an interview that I've got up here, some of that was a chief, saying right before that, we've just revamped our internal process and it's much better. We have to be on guard against pablum 
that is not any meat and potatoes. That's not a very good metaphor there. But right now, our council is in the process and has done something. It had a committee, it's called Enhancement Committee, trying to be sensitive to an improved, more realistic, more objective, impartial review process. But even, so you have Police Captain Professional Standards Division, you have a citizen something or another, you have a police chief, you have a manager. Even if you put, I don't know, whoever you can think of, the feistiest person you can think of, on the citizen's review, they get trumped. They get trumped at the next level up. And they don't get access to the information, they don't get the training, some of that is being worked on. Nancy may want to comment on that. But it's a very difficult thing, but I'll go back to what Michelle Alexander mentioned and Julie mentioned it. We should start thinking, what do we want as our government and nation to be? How do we want to get past rule by the elite that Madison wanted and that we've seen to me still have? And we don't think, I call it inside the beltway thinking. I worked out of DC for a while, I had an office there, got a mindset in there, it's like, well, the Democrats are in this year, the Republicans in, what can we get out of them? No, what do the children need? What do our young people need? And then let's announce that and start to demand it and demand that we throw out the people that don't give it to us. I don't support our governor, McCrory, wanting to convene the legislature back to reverse the ordinance out of Charlotte, you know, that says, I don't support, but at least he told us where he stood. He's on record saying, I want to fight that law, and he's got, luckily, the, not luckily for him, the power. So you see my point there, where are our elected officials? The only place that we have a direct say that can make some real difference is city council. They hire the manager. At that point, the manager hires the chief. So arguably, the city council can't fire the chief. They could fire the manager for not managing the chief. So if we want those kinds of things, videotapes released, we are citizen, independent citizens review, that's where we start making our demands. And I'll quickly add, in these district meetings flowing out of the community city working group, one of which will be right here on the 17th, that's the place to have those kinds of discussions and bring it. And we can just make it happen. Maybe it'll take a little longer if we have to go through Raleigh, but it won't ever happen if we don't get it started and formulated as a reasonable demand that we want and we, out of our vision, um, our comment. <laughs> really, I don't want to make a question. I would like to make a suggestion, if I may. Um, I don't see many people from diversity here. I'm Latino, as you can see, from my accent. Um, my, my suggestion is, I, I'm from Burlington, I'm from Greensboro, but I used to live here. Mm -hmm. It's a very nice town. I think it's very nice what you have. I continue to come here occasionally for work, for everything, for information and educational you know, workshops like this. Um, I see that this is about law enforcement and I don't see representative from law enforcement. I would like to see people from education. I'm a teacher myself. I don't see or I haven't heard people from the educational side. The other things, um, in Burlington, which is a little town, um, law enforcement have been trying to invite people to participate and take decisions as, about, um, as far as community affairs are concerned. Uh, do they do that, that here? That's one thing. And when I go to those uh, meetings, 
I don't see very many people interested. Uh, as a Latino, I am very much interested in what happened to my community, and not only to my community. I work with NWCP and some other organizations. But I'd like to see involvement not only from the old people, I'm old myself, <laughs> so I'd like to see, and I see just, just a few young people here. Uh, they have things like ride-along programs in which people can participate with law enforcement and see what is it from the inside. As a matter of fact, two activists recently said, you know, you can do this, you could have done this and that, which is basically what you, what you were trying to express or, or share with us. But I don't see those people, I don't see Americans really participating in this process. I see that people come and share and talk, but they don't want to get involved as you do, as we should. I mean, we only do that when we get old, but that time is too late. We have young people here. So I'm sorry that I'm taking too long for this, but this is one opportunity that I have, you know, to express my concerns and thank you for that. And I would yeah. invite you to really get engaged because when I go and see events, I don't see you participating. I don't see you saying, look, I'm for, I'm against, I would like to see this, I would suggest. So it probably would be a good idea for you to take that into consideration. Thank you very much. Very well put. Uh, you did a good job of saying democracy is not a spectator sport. It's not something you have, it's something that you do. And we are very poor at that. Look at the voter turnout. The most important, you know, is it's terrible. What are the numbers? We don't, we don't get half the, the voters to come out even, do we? So that is, that's essential. If I could yeah, please do. piggyback on that, um, just so you're, you, and thank you for very much for your comments. I would not want you to take the lack of diversity as a lack of interest mm -hmm. on other people of color. This series is specifically designed as doing our, white people doing our work. And we've said everybody's welcome to be here and be part of it, but we know that uh, white folks have a lot of work to do. So that, that kind of is reflected in the crowd. But thank you again for your, for your comments and your plea to people to get involved. I, had a, I have a friend who at one point was president or head of Veterans for Peace, and he was not in service at the time he went to Iraq. And he was doing like apparently a lot of Americans or U.S. that would go over and say, we're sorry, man, we're not doing it, we're not doing it. And they say back, what do you mean you're not doing it? You claim you have a democracy. <laughs> If you're not doing it, who is? Then are they not your representatives? That's a very powerful thing for us to, to marinate in. All these things that most of the polls show that so much of the policy that's being acted out, military and otherwise, is not consistent with what, what we want. Yes. I had a question. Um, did you talk about the Project Kudzu that's going on? See that in the Rhino Times? I don't. Well, um, I work with people that are dealing with homelessness, and somebody, okay. when I served breakfast the other day, brought me the Rhino Times. And it was about um, the police departments, sheriff's departments in several counties collaborating with something called Project Kudzu. And so they're going to communicate. But one of the things that was in that article was that this will give them more power to be able to predict where crime is going to occur so they can put more patrols in that neighborhood, in those neighborhoods. And I don't know, that just kind of seems like neighborhood profiling. 
And I can tell you that the African-American community finds it really scary. So can you comment on that? Amen. That was very clear. Uh, you know, we've gone through these different things, like preventive detention, those kinds of notions. Uh, and we held all these people in Guantanamo for years without even a charge. So don't think if it happened there that it couldn't happen here. So I agree with you. That's very frightening. And that's that issue of contact policing. Go where they are because they're going to do something wrong and we, we'll, we'll be there. It's, it's just wrong-headed. If we don't want that, we need to make our views known and powerfully. Hey, Michael. Whoa, Lewis. What's up? Lewis, um, first of all, this was superb. I mean, I say this as an historian. I mean, this was a brilliant, brilliant presentation based on real evidence. I want to raise something only for, for the purposes of a conversation, okay? The basis of your talk tonight was about black people as property, ownership, right? Ownership, right from, yes, I'm sorry, ownership right from the very beginning mm -hmm. of this country, right? John Jay said, people who own the country should run the country. You could argue that things haven't changed. Yes. The only thing that's changed is that there are a few people up at the top who seem to own a lot more than people did 200 years ago. Okay. Now, I've come to many of these meetings, and I remember, I remember the first meeting that we had that Bay Love spoke, and Bay talked about a racialized caste system, and I think I got up and I said, I think that it's misleading to do that because if you're going to talk about slave slavery, you need to talk about the slave trade. And so black people were commodities to be bought and sold. And everything you said tonight reaffirmed that. So then we get to the question of how do we create equity and fairness in this city, and how can we not do it unless we find a way to take the wealth that is on this side of the town and try to figure out how to get some wealth on the other side of the town. This is what institutionalized racing, uh, racism is all about, right? This is the core of institutional racism. It's about property and discrimination and brutality and murder and everything on top of that, okay? And don't we need to find a way to not only undo that, but actually to transcend it? How do we go, how do we go about doing that? I mean, do, am I making a yes, point here that's in line with your presentation? Yes. In fact, I have in my notes, and I didn't, didn't say it, but we have a present, preservation through transformation, a racial caste system, that's Michelle. I could add, or we could add, same thing except say class caste system. And that's the rabble. That's the turbulent changing masses that the founders, Alexander Hamilton, banker, which I think is relevant given Wall Street, said they should not rule, they should not have a say. Because they're gonna wanna level and have aspirations. What we do first uh, does matter. 
I mean, I think that these present doing our work is about race and law enforcement, and there needs to be primary and secondary type things there always will be. I think it's incumbent on us to stop the slaughter of non-white people. I, won't, I don't mind kind of putting that out there as first, but you can usually talk and chew gum at the same time, so while we're doing that, we should be thinking and working with people about homeless issues. And I don't mean just sort of the, in the worst sense, soup kitchen, transformational things. Uh, for example, here's a quote out of Michelle's book. She's quoting a historian, Gerald McKnight. Martin Luther King was proposing nothing less than a radical transformation of the civil rights movement into a populist crusade calling for redistribution of economic and political power. Me too. Now, I don't know exactly how to do <laughs> But one, one way is coming here, but this is t what can't happen is this is just talk session, go home, forget it, and then there's another one tomorrow. Maybe coming back on the 17th will be that too, but there won't be any one where you feel like, now we got it. It's just, you know, all I know to say is I, I, I like um, Noam Chomsky, guy, he's bright, but I've, I've heard the tapes of him, I've never seen him live at the end. Somebody essentially says, well, Professor Chomsky, what do we do? And he goes, I don't know, you decide, but what's always worked is when, it, it's like the Margaret Mead thing, when a few people get together and start to take some action, that's like a snowball. And I think, the potential for critical mass right now is the greatest it's ever been in my 68 years. You got nutcases like Donald Trump out there attracting people, excuse me, and they will say, because I heard him say it on the radio, and my next choice is Bernie Sanders. Now, that's not deep thinking, but that's a statement of I want something radically new and different. So we need to get to those Tea partiers and play this patriotic thing to them, recross a couple of wires in their head <laughs> so they're not racist and all these other things, and they can be very much part of us. And that's why we can't, and I'm not saying we are, only, only say black folks are getting hurt and being killed, and white folks got white privilege and they're all doing great, because you know they ain't. You got a relative or a friend or a neighbor, right? That's got a medical bill right now or lost a job. That's a paycheck away. All of them. Well, I am. <laughs> That's how fragile this thing is, and it's fluid. Who would have thought that a Bernie Sanders, a Democratic Socialist, could be viable in changing the conversation? That's reason for hope right there. And I don't know what to do next and after that, other than ask Julie to comment. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Uh, we're all talking about the black people being shot. Um, as you pointed out, we have a large Hispanic population here. And if any studies have been done about whether I personally feel there's stereotype too, targeted by police, um, what kind of results are coming out of studies of how much we're targeting other people of color. 
I had just briefly a personal experience with a um, stolen wallet recently, and I reported to the police, and I said, I, the guys were Hispanic, probably two young men. When I got the police report, it said that the um, offender was a non-resident. It was resident, non-resident, unknown. And I called and I said, I have no idea, but I think that was police bias, stereotype. If I said Hispanic, they thought undocumented. Right. And I challenged that and said, I have no idea. Um, which to me was just a small little signal that we're doing the same thing. Right. I can't cite the studies. They, they probably are. I think the data is harder to get as cut and dried on it, but I think there's no doubt that there's, because brown ain't white, <laughs> and this is about white, whiteness, and the social construct to contain and control was to control in behalf of whites and offer that racial bribe, that pseudo-nobility. You may be suffering on your on your farm, but you're not suffering as bad as him, and so I agree with that. I just don't know any specifics. Yes. Hey, you doing, Fahim? Um, and I'm a young person, so I'm just now getting here to the world, and there's been a lot of stuff that's been going on before I got here, and I'm learning about more of it. Um, and what's interesting to note the long and, short, long and short of racism is that at its core, it's a division of labor. It's to take me from where I am to put me in a position where my labor can be exploited to the most of that. And that, and that could be jail, it could be debt, it could be uh, many other things. Um, but my labor is being exploited, but my labor is not the only labor being exploited. It's being exploited the most, but not the only. There are many uh, white folks here in the city and all around that you guys are related to that you that you know there are Hispanic folks and their labor is being exploited too. If we want to reverse the system, we have to start off with the most basic uh, essential part of what racism is, the division of labor. We have to create a system where people can put in their labor and get out what is equal and equitable for them. Um, the, the issue of homelessness is easy. We need to give people these homes. Like We need to give people the things that they need. There, there's a fox in the woods and he is born with the things that he will need, and he will eat, sleep, shit, and have sex on that land, and he will have children. But here, as a human, we have access to nothing, and especially when you have black skin like I do. And so it is, there is something very human about having access to the very earth we are born on. We have to get back to that, um, and we have to, it's not that hard. A system that literally reverses what people get out of the system of racism. I'm working on one, it's called the CP Society Model, it's on Facebook, I don't have time to go into it, but it's not, it's not very difficult from where I'm standing, um, and it has to happen sooner. There's no such thing as progression to freedom. It's, it's absurd. Thank you. Just, just a quick, quick comment on the, uh, the property thing. Think about slavery is treating a person as property. Now think about the term corporate personhood, this bizarre notion. That's treating property as a person. And that is a major problem. You know, so many people wrongly think that one of those preservation through transformation was Citizens United case 2010 that said you can 
corporations can spend all the money they want, and that that was the beginning of corporate personhood. Corporate personhood began in 1886, 1886, by, from the railroads. And the, the lawyer, so the, the, so the Civil War has happened, right? So you got a 14th Amendment, you got equal protection. The railroad lawyer stood up in court, and I've read the transcript very graciously. It said, we are so glad that the 14th Amendment was passed, and we all want our brethren and, you know, to get fairness. But, and they made the first reverse discrimination argument, we sure don't want to discriminate in that 14th Amendment protection against Mr. Railroad Baron here. Now, what is bizarre, and find this book, Unequal Protection, Unequal Protection, not written by a lawyer, The Rise of Corporate Dominance and the Theft of Human Rights. The decision that came out of the court literally says, we don't address the constitutional question of whether or not the due process clause of the 14th Amendment applies to corporations. Says we avoided it, because they resolved it on, a, if you know the law, you avoid a big constitutional question if you can solve it on a little piddling question. But the head note, if you've ever looked at a case that has a head note, it's just a summary that some editor puts in there, says we find that corporations are persons with due process. That was the beginning of corporate personhood. And what makes it even more bizarre, they, our communities, let's say we mobilize, because many communities mobilize and get together and demand and have a city ordinance passed or a, a state law that's enacted that says we do not want to have, pick, I don't know, XYZ chemical put in into this stuff. And it's passed by law, by the people. A corporation simply comes in and says, we are a person, you have interfered with our equal protection to do that. And their argument trumps the people. Now, and think about this now. Wow, and, and President Obama wanted to end, wants to end his legacy on this, and I know we're about out of time. The Trans-Pacific Partnership and those kind of things, look into that. That's a global elite Think about Madison and Ham, who've gotten together and have formed a cabal of laws and rules that serve secret. Our representatives weren't even allowed. Your congressperson wasn't allowed to see the drafts, but trade representatives were, corporate leaders were. They've come together and are creating multi-company that has a tribunal to make decisions that is closed and shut and secret to you. And what they can do is trump a federal law. Or if they don't actually overrule it, they can say, and here's what the corporations argue, we're talking about economic justice, it's a human rights issue, your law deprives me of my future profits. That's how bizarre this is. This is like science fiction. And that's why I maybe went too much out of the way to say, Fannie Lou Hamer, what's hurting black folks, hurting white folks, and we've got to work together and quote this thing about, it's all, let me, let me close with a, a, April 4th is the day that Dr. King was assassinated in 68. April the 7th, 1967, he gave his famous sermon at Riverside Church. Let me do that just a little bit. Here are his words. Because think how it relates to the day. Wow, how, even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men, he was wrong, do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. 
nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. We're always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate in our limited vision, but we must speak. A few years ago, it seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through poverty programs. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonic, destructive suction tube. I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my government. We as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes necessary to see that an edifice, a system, a structure, which produces beggars needs restructuring. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. We are now faced with the fact, my friends, that tomorrow is today. We are now faced with the fierce urgency of now. We must move past indecision to action. He was murdered a year later. And two days after he was murdered, he was scheduled to give a sermon called Why America May Go to Hell. Thank you.